Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Matilde Gustav and uh, Lenny uh, Melencar uh, from the Danish Cancer Society Research Center in Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, and the topic of this discussion is going to be the recently published article on Annals of Internal Medicine titled Long-Term Health Consequences After Ovarian Removal at Benign Hysterectomy, a nationwide cohort study. Uh, Matilde, uh, Lina, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. And uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure speaking with you about this uh, article. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. Uh, excellent. So um, lots of uh, topics and, and questions to, to discuss. And, you know, obviously, um, you know, we know that uh, bilateral salpingophorectomy, a benign hysterectomy decreases the risk of ovarian cancer, particularly for patients who are at high risk. But Matilda, I was, I was wondering if we can start with you um, and if you could provide sort of a, an overview of the importance of this issue and, and share what information has been gathered uh, about it up to this point. Yeah, of course, I'll try to give you an overview. Um, so, so as you mentioned, um, you can say that ovarian removal at benign hysterectomy is controversial because um, in women who have a genetic predisposition to ovarian cancer, it is believed that um, ovarectomy is beneficial. Um, but for those women who do not have a family history of cancer, um, the low ovarian cancer incidence must be weighted against other long-term health um, benefits and also consequences. Um, and so the, the clinical guidelines today are based on observational studies since um, no randomized controlled trials have ever been done in this area. Um, and so existing literature indicates that there are some adverse health consequences, especially in premenopausal women. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think it's unlikely that such a trial will be carried out in the future. And therefore, uh, we have to rely on the observational data that we have. Yeah. Um, and so the majority of the studies that the current Danish guidelines from the Danish uh, Society of Obstetrics and Gynecology are based on. Um, they include uh, self-reported information um, and also comes from uh, or are based on populations with um, high prevalence of ovarectomy at benign hysterectomy compared to what we have here in Denmark. Um, and and since the latest revision of the Danish guidelines, there um, has been published two register-based studies, one from the UK and one from Canada. Um, but they lacked information on postmenopausal women and on hormone therapy use and also long-term follow-up. Um, and so, therefore, uh, we wanted to use the Danish um, comprehensive register data um, to add some knowledge on the appropriateness of um, ovarectomy at benign hysterectomy, um, especially, and this is important, we think, in women with no family history of cancer. Um, so that was, yeah, the idea behind our study. Um, and then we chose to focus on cancer and cardiovascular disease and mortality. 
because it's you know considered to be major health um, outcomes. Yeah. Great. So, uh, Matilda, thank you so much for for that introduction, and I'll I'll uh, I'll stay with you, and and I was wondering if you can uh, tell us about the study design for this particular study. Yeah, of course. Um, so we used the uh, so-called emulated target trial design. So this means that you use observational data to simulate a randomized control trial, you can say. Mm. Um, and we, um, our data was retrieved from the Danish uh, nationwide health registers. And based on this information, uh, we then defined two treatment arms. So we had one group of women who had benign hysterectomy alone, and then another group of women who had um, benign hysterectomy with concomitant bilateral salpingo-ophorectomy. And then we followed these women uh, through the um, study period until one of the outcomes of interest or end of the study period. Um, and we um, estimated then the cumulative incidence of these outcomes at 10 and 20 years following surgery. Um, and all our analysis, they um, adhere to the so-called intention to treat principle. So um, this means that women um, stays in that treatment arm that she's assigned to at the beginning of the study. <clears throat> we would have liked to actually also have done some per protocol analysis where if a woman has ophorectomy at a later point in time, so after the hysterectomy, she was censored out at that point. Um, but unfortunately, we couldn't do that because we didn't have the information that could predict which women would have this ophorectomy. Um, so we only have the intention to treat principle. Um, and then finally, I can mention that uh, all our analysis, they were stratified according to age at surgery because we know that menopausal status is important. Um, when investigating um, ophorectomy. And so we don't have information in the registers on menopausal status. And so therefore we uh, used age at surgery as a proxy. Um, and this gave us these four age groups. So we had women who had surgery prior to age uh, 45 years, which we considered premenopausal. Then we had this perimenopausal age group of women who had surgery at 45 to 54 years, and then a postmenopausal age group, which we divided into two groups actually. <clears throat> so we had an early postmenopausal age group, which were women who were 55 to 64 years, and then the late postmenopausal group of women who were 65 years or more at surgery. Yeah. Great. So uh, I'll turn to uh, Lenny and uh, ask her. Um, can you talk a little bit more about um, the primary outcomes of the of the study and give us some more details about that? Yeah, the the primary outcomes, as uh, Matilda said, is uh, all types of cancer combined, uh, except non-melanoma skin cancer, and then we had uh, ischemic heart disease and stroke combined, and then we had uh, all-cause mortality. That were the three uh, primary outcomes in our study. Fantastic. And uh, tell us now, before we get into the questions about your results, 
what are some of the highlights that you would like our audience to take away from, from the study findings? Yeah, well, we'd say that um, we found that, as expected, women who had their ovaries removed had a lower risk of ovarian cancer. Um, but uh, the other health outcomes varied by age and also sometimes uh, varied depending on whether we looked at the 10 or the 20 year risk. Um, and uh, so uh, if I should highlight the findings for the premenopausal women, I would say that they uh, had an excess of cardiovascular disease. Um, they had a, a lower risk of cancer, uh, overall cancer and breast cancer, but it was a small uh, decrease in risk and not significant. And then they had uh, no survival benefit of, uh, of rectomy. So that was for the premenopausal women. Uh, the postmenopausal women sort of overall would say that they had an excess of um, cancer. And uh, for the mortality, it was sort of mixed what we found for 10 and 20 years uh, risk. So we would say that there were no clear survival benefit also among the postmenopausal women. So I would say that would be the highlight, just briefly uh, mentioning ourselves. Yeah. Very well, Annie, and I'll I'll uh, I'll stay with you with regards to now some questions from our fellows in the journal. And this first question is from Giulio Bonaldo. He's in um, Italy, Milan, and he's asking: Considering your results and previous studies, what kind of information um, should we be giving our patients during the preoperative counseling? Yeah, so so front, I was just wanted to mention that I'm a cancer epidemiologist, so I don't actually give advice to patients. But <laughs> as mentioned earlier, we had no information on menopausal status. So the group that we call perimenopausal uh, women is broad with women aged from 45 to 54 years at hysterectomy because we wanted to capture women that with great certainty we can say are premenopausal and women who are postmenopausal outside this age range. Um, so what we have in the perimenopausal group is really a mixture of women who are true premenopausal, true perimenopausal, and true postmenopausal. Um, and the results that we see for this group, I think, are not directly sort of applicable to perimenopausal women, sorry, seen in the, in the clinic because in the clinic, uh, the menopausal status can be determined with much more uh, certainty. Excellent. And um, this question obviously it relates also to that um, uh, issue of hormone replacement therapy. This is from Teresa Pan in Austria. And she asked, um, would, should we prescribe hormone replacement in patients who undergo Bilateral salpingophorectomy for benign disease, and um, for how long uh, should that be a recommendation? Yeah, so we did have data on hormone replacement therapy in our study. However, since the Danish uh, prescription register was established in 1995, we only had these data for a subpopulation, and we did not have 
um, that many premenopausal women undergoing hysterectomy mm. with bilateral cervical hysterectomy during this time period. And when we also inspected the prescription pattern for systemic uh, hormonal placement therapy among the premenopausal women, the numbers became even smaller. Um, so we were not able to perform an emulated trial on premenopausal women with inclusion of the hormone replacement therapy data due to lack of power. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we only examined hormone replacement therapy in the analysis, including postmenopausal women who are aged 55, uh, yeah, 55 years or more. Yeah. Excellent. Um, this next question is from Andrea Rosati. He's at Gemelli Hospital in Rome. And I'll ask you, Matilde, um, yeah. He has given the evidence against bilateral salpingophorectomy in premenopausal patients. Are there any selected cases where one would still recommend bilateral salpingophorectomy, especially in patients with a strong family history of breast or ovarian cancer, but without an evident pathogenic mutation? Yeah, um, and it's 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 a really good question. Um, so um, in our study, as I mentioned in the beginning, we wanted to focus on women with no family history of cancer. And so we actually, to the extent that was possible with our data, we excluded those who had family history of cancer. Um, so you know, we, we reckon that this group of women can be especially difficult to counsel because they, they report of this strong family history of cancer, but we don't really know the the reason you can say, um, uh, but unfortunately we didn't have information in our study that allows us to give recommendations for these women. Um, but it, it could definitely be interesting and relevant in, in future studies to to yeah make a, a similar study as ours, but among these women, yeah. So not the women with bracket gene mutations or or the like, but this group of women where we don't know the pathogenic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that actually leads us to our next question from Lisa Buru, and you may not have uh, answers to this from from this particular study, but I, uh, she asked, BRCA status was not included in your analysis. Um, do you reckon it could have made a significant impact on your results? Yeah, and and I think, you know, so the re- current recommendations for women with BRCA gene mutations um, are that they should have bilateral ovarectomy after finishing childbearing uh, due to the increased risk of ovarian cancer. Um, and But once again, we did not have this information in our study. And I think if, if we had this information, we would actually use it to exclude women with BRCA gene mutations because this was not the focus uh, that we had. Um, but again, I think it, it could be a very uh, interesting study to do the same thing, but among this group of women also. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, we could, I could just mention that we know that among premenopausal women with a high risk of ovarian cancer, there are um, now randomized trials going on which are trying to uh, evaluate whether salpingectomy with delayed ophorectomy could be non-inferior yeah, to the current uh, recommendations. And so I think that could be very interesting to see the results from, from those trials, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'll turn to uh, Nina now. Um, this question comes from Barcelona and Nuria Gusti. She asked, the study added new insights regarding the cancer risk when 
bilateral salpingophorectomy is performed, uh, showing that it is associated with a protective effect on overall cancer and breast cancer in women under 45, but it certainly may have detrimental effects in women over 45. However, other published studies uh, did not find an association between bilateral salpingophorectomy and cancer risk. Um, what do you think may be the reasons for this discrepancy? Yeah, so it, it's true that the oral pattern that we saw was a protective effect of uh, bilateral silpingophorectomy on all cancer combined and breast cancer and premenopausal women and, and the opposite effect in women older than 45 years. And so, as you mentioned, it's in contrast to, to the two large U.S. cohort studies, the Nurses Health and the Cancer Prevention Study uh, to Nutrition Cohort. Um, uh, we don't know um, what is the reason behind the differences between the studies, but we know that the design and the type of data is different from our study and the US cohort study, but it's very hard to say if these differences um, is actually something that contributes to this difference in, in, uh, in the cancer results. Uh, we also looked into the influence of use of uh, hormone replacement therapy, as I mentioned uh, previously. We had data on this for those women who were above 55 years um, at surgery and who did not use uh, hormone replacement therapy within two years of the hysterectomy. And here our results showed that uh, the ex overall excess of cancer at 10 years is actually attenuated and became non-significant when we censored at a hormone replacement therapy prescription. So in the, in the nurses health study and the cancer prevention study two nutrition cohort, they adjusted for hormone replacement therapy. So they were not actually able to see if hormone replacement therapy had any influence on the cancer risk. Um, in the nurses health study, they also performed uh, another analysis where they restricted to the never uses of hormone replacement therapy. And um, here they only report on breast cancer and not overall cancer. Um, but because use of hormone replacement therapy was quite common among the women in this cohort, um, both in hysterectomy alone and the hysterectomy uh, with a bilateral supremophorectomy, the numbers were quite small for the never uses. And here they found that the hazard ratio of breast cancer among women aged 50 or more was non-significantly increased. So women having undergone hysterectomy are prescribed estrogen alone therapy. And it's thought that in regards to breast cancer, the risk is mainly increased for use of combination therapy with estrogen and progesterone and not for use of estrogen alone. Um, there are some data from the Women's Health Initiative Estrogen Alone trial that they've used to investigate health outcomes, including breast cancer after estrogen therapy among women were aged 50 to 79 years with prior hysterectomy, comparing those with and without bilateral sulfingophorectomy. And these results indicated that there may possibly be a difference in the risk of breast cancer depending on the age, but again, there's also in this study, the, the numbers were quite small. So overall, I think it's quite, it's not quite clear 
what role hormone replacement therapy has in the excess of cancer that we see. The two previous registered-based studies have either not reported on cancer incidence or did not include women above 45 years. So I think the literature is actually quite sparse when it comes to cancer incidence. So we really need more studies. Excellent, very well. Um, so we um, turn to Matilde now. Uh, this question comes from Brian Kahn uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And uh, um, he asked, as the Danish population was utilized for this study, do you feel if a similar study was performed in the United States or other parts of Europe where there is greater numbers of a population at a higher risk of ovarian cancer like Ashkenazi Jews or HRD uh, gene alteration population, that the overall results may have been different uh, for peri and postmenopausal women. Yeah, so so of course you can say that the more the study populations are alike, the easier it is to generalize to other the results to other countries or populations. Um, <clears throat> and for instance, we know that, as I've also mentioned, the prevalence of um, bilateral cell pinko ovarectomy concomitant with benign hysterectomy. It's higher in the U.S. than it is here in Denmark. Um, and I think it's difficult to say whether we can actually compare these women because they must differ somehow. Um, yeah, and, and also, um, since we focus on women with no family history of cancer in our study, uh, then if other studies include a population with a high proportion of women uh, with increased risk of ovarian cancer, then we cannot really compare our results. Um, and so as far as it's possible, we believe that we should aim to carry out studies um, with se separate populations. So you have to have one study with restricted to the average risk population and then another study um, restricted to these high risk populations. Yeah. Excellent. And Linia, uh, this question comes from Teresa Pan in, uh, in Austria. And um, interesting point, she says, she asked, do you know if there are any data out there about the increased risk of cardiovascular disease even after a unilateral oophorectomy? Yeah, so I must say, uh, unfortunately, we haven't looked into this. In our study, we only considered the bilateral oophorectomy. So, sorry. Okay. Um, this one comes from Giulio Bonaldo in Italy, and he asked, could you further comment on the effects of hormone replacement uh, on the analyses of uh, not only cancer risk, but cardiovascular disease and mortality? Uh, there is data on the effect of premature bilateral salpingo forectum on osteoporosis and cognitive performance. Um, do you have any data about that? And if not, why didn't you consider these in your study? Yeah, so um, concerning effect of uh, hormone replacement therapy on cancer, I've already addressed that earlier. Right. Um, and all the risk estimates for cardiovascular disease and mortality in the subpopulation for whom we had information on hormone replacement therapy were compatible with no effect on of hormone replacement therapy. So it was beyond the scope of the study, which is published to look at other outcomes such as osteoporosis and cognitive function. We already had several outcomes in our study. We had these four age groups. And each for each, we had 10 and 20 year risk estimates. 
uh, in addition to this analysis in a subpopulation with information on hormone replacement therapy. So we had to focus and prioritize the outcomes. However, we agreed that it would be very interesting to look at osteoporosis in a future study and also to look at cognitive function. But unfortunately, it will not be possible to look at this outcome with the registered data. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Matilde, this question is from Andrea Rosati regarding ovarian preservation in postmenopausal women. Uh, he asked, is there any rationale for ovarian preservation in postmenopausal women? Um, and you know, certainly, what, what is the data as it pertains to long-term, 10, 20-year mortality? Yeah. Um, again, that's a very good question. Um, and, and we, you know, we think that this is a very complex uh, topic. Um, but we also believe that in the counseling of women, um, it's important to focus whether bilateral salpingo-ophorectomy at time of benign hysterectomy leads to greater benefit than harm, mm. um, especially because a lot of these women, their ovaries are healthy when you remove them, so you have to keep this in mind. Um, and overall, our results for the postmenopausal group of women were mixed regarding the 10 and 20-year mortality, which mm. Lena has also mentioned. And so taken together, we don't see any clear survival benefit. Um, and <clears throat> as also important to mention, I think that we did not investigate mental health and osteoporosis and quality of life, as you've just talked about. And so if we don't see uh, an increased mortality following bilateral ovarectomy, then these factors must also be considered when deciding which women should have um, bilateral ovary to me, in our opinion, yeah. So more studies are needed, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Um, Linia, I'll turn to you. Anissa Mburu from Kenya, she asked, if you were to create an age-stratified algorithm that identifies those that qualify for unilateral or bilateral salpingophorectomy versus none, what breakdown of the main elements would you consider in creating such a tool? Yeah, this is another very good question. <laughs> uh, I would think that such an algorithm would be very useful in the clinic, but unfortunately, based on our study, we cannot identify the factors that should be included in such an algorithm. I think that those who would benefit from bilateral sulfingophorectomy without doubt are those women who in the future will develop ovarian cancer. So we would very much like to know at the time of the hysterectomy who are these women so we really need um, a prediction model for ovarian cancer and or a good biomarker that can identify these women with a high probability. And besides, I also think we would like to know who will need to undergo ovarectomy at a later time for whatever reason. So we also need a model that can predict the need to perform subsequent ovarian surgery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, and, and that brings me to the next question uh, from uh, Vansa Koshavili. She's in Georgia. And uh, I'll ask Matilde. Um, she asked, have you investigated the incidence of agnexal pathology and the subsequent need for additional surgery, either as bilateral salpingophorectomy or unilateral salpingophorectomy in patients who just have a hysterectomy? Yeah. 
So, so no, unfortunately, we haven't looked into that, but it's, I can understand the question and the importance of the question, yeah, but it's not something we've looked into, no. So I, I think you know over, overall there's uh th there's a lot of future studies for our fellows too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah sure. a uh, a few more questions. I want to obviously be respectful of your time. Uh, and Matilda, I'll ask you, what do you see as like the main limitations of this study? Yeah. So of course there were were some weaknesses. Um, and what I would like to mention here is that um, we did not have the information on menopausal status uh, but used age at surgery instead um, but we do think that we we did it as the best we could so we know that the mean age of at menopause in Denmark is 51 years um, and so we think that the two groups of women who were below age 45 and above 55 years um, to a great extent are dominated by respectively pre and postmenopausal women. Yeah. Um, and another limitation is, as we've talked about also here, the, that we did not have information on genetic dis predisposition to um, cancer, such as BRCA status. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, in our study, we used diagnosis codes instead um, from the 10th edition of the International Classification of Diseases. Um, indicating whether a woman had family history of cancer or not. Um, but these codes were introduced in the Danish uh, health registers in 1994, so they don't cover the whole period. So that's, of course, a limitation. Um, and then finally, I, I would like to highlight that we were not able to perform analysis taking hormone therapy into account for the premenopausal women due to power issues, as Lena also mentioned. Um, and so the, the information on prescription drugs is available from 1995. So it's quite recent period we could investigate these things in. Um, but it could definitely have been interesting to see whether the adverse health outcomes that we observed among the premenopausal women um, following bilateral ovarectomy, if they could be ascribed to women who did not adhere to hormone therapy medication use. Yeah, that could have been Excellent. So usually as a last question, we ask about what do we do with our patients after your study? Um, so this question is from Brian Kahn in, uh, in New York, and he asked, um, what do we tell our patients who are premenopausal, patients who are perimenopausal, and patients who are postmenopausal? Um, I think that our results cannot stand alone. They must be combined with the other evidence um, on this area. So we've looked at cancer, cardiovascular disease, and mortality after removal of the ovaries, but um, the hormones also influence many other conditions, um, such as osteoporosis, neurological conditions, uh, and other conditions. So um, we hope that our study will in be included together with all the other studies in this area to make an overall evaluation of the advantages and disadvantages when national guidelines are being updated. Excellent. Um, Mathilde, Gutschau, yep. and Line uh, Melancar, thank you so much for this, uh, this discussion and uh, congratulations to you and the rest of the authors of this important paper. 
Uh, it's really been a pleasure, and certainly we've all learned a lot from from this discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to participate.